Edge computing allows for faster data access and computation. When your client application makes a request, that request might be routed to the Edge. Edge servers are more numerous and widely distributed than normal data centers. But an Edge server might not have all of the data or the complete application logic for the backend to serve your request. Edge servers have historically been used for content delivery networks, or CDNs. CDNs are useful for hosting and serving media files that might otherwise be slow to access over a network. More recently, applications are also using Edge servers for computation, as well as storage of resources which are smaller than the movies and music and images that have traditionally been stored on an Edge server. Steve Klabnik is an engineer with Cloudflare, and he returns to the show to discuss storage at the Edge. In Steve's previous appearances, we have explored Rust and WebAssembly, and we also touch on those topics in today's episode. The SE Daily app for Android is finally ready. It is either on the App Store or will be on the App Store very soon by the time of this episode airing, and it is a well-built application to find all of our episodes. You can comment on them, you can post related links, you can find additional content around them, and we also have that app for iOS. It's been in the store for a while. The other announcement is that the Find Collabs Hackathon is still going on. That ends later this month. Find Collabs is a company I'm building. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. There are many people who are posting their open source projects and finding collaborators on there. So if you're looking for a good excuse to start a project or to share a project that you already have with other people, take a look at Find Collabs, findcollabs.com. And check out the Find Collabs Open, which is our hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. You can go there by finding, going to findcollabs.com slash open. With that, let's get on to today's show. Steve Klabnik, welcome to Software Engineering Daily once again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. There is a term edge computing. What does that term mean to you? Yeah, so I sort of see this as like a really interesting development in the way that you build web applications. So first thing is we're talking about the web. And there's been a lot of change, especially for, you know, those of us who have been around the web for a while, like I kind of cut my teeth on some Perl and PHP back in the day, and then came Rails, all these sort of developments. But edge computing is sort of a shift in where the computing actually happens. So kind of like the the r- super rough overview as I see it is like we used to have servers and then we started renting servers from somewhere else. And edge compute is about having those servers be located all over the world instead of Northern Virginia. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen due to that shift. But that's kind of like the basic idea is like, what if your compute didn't happen in one data center? What if it happened everywhere all around the world simultaneously? One way that edge computing is manifesting is in the increase in computation at the edge. We have used the edge for storage with CDNs for a long time. Why haven't we used the edge for computation? So I think it's a combination of a couple of different things. The first is that I'm not sure anybody really thought about this for a while. There's lots of good ideas in computing that could have existed earlier, but didn't because nobody had the like idea to make it happen. But I also think that there's it's a little more interesting like when you dig into the actual like architectural constraints because 
like one of the reasons why we have data centers and you have to decide where your stuff runs the data center is like imagine you're on the other side of the fence like think about if you are the person that runs these servers do you want everyone's code to be in all of your servers all the time that like increases your cost significantly because you know you are putting people's stuff in more places and as you get to the outer parts of the internet like you know we we like to think of the internet as being hyper reliable but you know once you start getting farther away from the center things get a little dicier and it's a little harder to like get things going and so there's lots of like challenges both in like actually provisioning the physical aspects of the internet but then also like the cost aspects and you know all these other kinds of things so i think that those things have all had something to do with why this is not really a thing that's been happening until pretty recently we've got computation at the edge now and we will talk about how and why that is implemented in a special way but let's first talk about the applications what kinds of applications would we want compute at the edge for so i think there's sort of two major divisions here the first is that you know you can build something that runs entirely at the edge but that's using a lot of brand new technology all at once but also a lot of people are doing things where they split some parts of their stuff to the edge and some parts that are not and that's definitely the you know for anything that's brand new that you could call mature it's like the the more mature option so for example is like authorization and authentication if you can detect if your user is like allowed to do the thing they're trying to do sooner, then you can give them a rejection notice faster, which can also like take load off of your central servers because the request never gets past the you know edge of the internet. So there's like like hybrid stuff like that that's being done. And then what about something like custom responses? Like maybe if I want to keep a machine learning model at the edge for each of my users, or perhaps if I want to have some kind of spam detection system that's at the edge so I can process that kind of stuff faster? What about these kinds of applications? Yeah, so the tricky part about this sort of stuff is that, like, I think the spam one is slightly better than the sort of AI or, like, ML kind of applications, and that's because the data access part is harder. So, like, pure computation is is much simpler of a thing, and once you start getting needing to access, like, on data and not just doing pure compute, that's where things get a little bit trickier. However, it is totally true that, like, doing stuff like spam filtering can work. And like, I guess another sort of similar aspect, like anytime you want to route someone to one thing or the other based on some sort of things, like A-B testing, for example, do the cohort analysis at the edge and then point them to the central server that way. Or some people are doing stuff like blue-green deploys, which like all sort of boils down to this, like, are you in person set A or set B? So maybe it's like spam goes to something slower and worse and like not spam goes to something faster and better. Like all sorts of things like that are, are things people are doing. You recently joined Cloudflare to work on storage at the edge. We've had CDNs for a long time, and CDN is a kind of storage. I can store my media files at the edge, my photos, my videos. Videos are a lot of data. That's a kind of storage. Why do we need something new for these other kinds of applications that we're putting at the edge? Why do we need new storage primitives for edge computing? So the first one is that like those kinds of applications are almost purely read only. Like you're you're fetching something and you're not like really updating it, you're just consuming it. And so being able to like purely read, it's much much easier to distribute things geographically if they're not going to change. 
And so that's like sort of the, for, the first thing. And in these ways, like if you think about the way the CDN works, it's like a pass through cache, right? So like check on the edge to see if it's stored or not. If it is, then you get it super fast. If it's not, it hits your origin and it pulls in and updates the cache and like that kind of thing works. But if you want to start being able to build applications where like you're doing more significant things where you're writing as well as reading, that's where stuff starts to get tricky. Because it's kind of funny, like, if you have your code and your data, like, co-located in a, in a data center somewhere, then, like, the latency between your application and your database are going to be small because they're next to each other. And so when you try to optimize that transfer time by moving your code closer to the person that's actually, like, seeing the thing, you've done it. But now you've introduced the same amount of latency to your database if it's still sitting in some sort of centralized location. And so the trick is like, how do we let people read and write from the edge as opposed to always needing to go back to some sort of like centralized store? And that's like sort of where things are extremely up in the air and are much more interesting. If I understand you correctly, you're saying that in the world of CDNs, the CDN is a kind of cache where a user might request a movie. And if that movie is in the CDN already then the access time is fast. And if the movie is not in the CDN, then the request will go all the way to the central servers and the user will get that movie. And then also the CDN will then populate the cache with that movie. But what's different about the edge storage that we're talking about is you might want a user to never have a cache miss, which means that you've got to pre-populate your edge storage system aggressively with the rights that are being made to that edge storage. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, yeah. So like to maybe putting it in more concrete terms would also be helpful. So like, you know, right now I am in London, but normally I would not be there. You know, so maybe like say uh, a coworker of mine is in Texas. And so we're building an application together, like maybe say we're editing a shared document like in a Google Docs style situation. If the code is running in Austin and the code is running in London, then that still doesn't like, I mean, it helps a little bit, but it doesn't super significantly decrease the amount of time that it takes to get to the end user if we're both connecting to, you know, S3, which is stored, you know, wherever, somewhere in the States, right? Like I still have to go over an ocean. They may have to go somewhere else within the US. And so the trick is like, is there a way that you can make it so that we can both be editing these things where it doesn't necessarily have to go the whole way back initially and or can we maybe pick an area that's like good for us whereas if say two other people are editing a document and one of them is in like Australia and the other one is in say Malaysia like they are doing their rights in somewhere that's closer to them not necessarily closer to us so you start talking about like how do you reconcile all these things and like all that kind of like trickiness basically so there are these data types and these compute types that we want to do at the edge. But we may not get the same consistency properties from this edge computation and storage that we get out of traditional database models. Could you explain why that is and and how that might affect what applications we choose to use at the edge? Yeah, totally. So the first thing that Cloudflare is doing on storage is this thing called Workers KV, which I'm now the product manager of. And the thing about, like, it basically gives you a very simple key value store that works the edge like this. However, we've also been very upfront. It's, it's sort of like a glorified cache. 
the exact same thing that you said about CDNs is basically how workers KV works. So like reads are stored locally and you'll tend to get them very fast. And then writes, you know, still have to be reconciled somewhere centrally and then pushed outwards. And so it's really good for like a read heavy sort of user flow, but like not very great if you need to do a ton of writes. And so like that is good for many applications, but it's definitely not good for like all of them. And so, you know, a lot of this work is kind of like research and development. Like I'm not telling you that I instantly have a super secret, amazing way to make this stuff kind of all work out. But I think that the, you know, motivation is very interesting and the problem space is very interesting. And so that's kind of like, you know, future work to do something that has like better consistency models and it's something we're sort of like actively investigating and working on and that kind of thing. This key value storage system, go into a little bit more detail about what is new about this. If if it's if the properties are similar to storing media files in a CDN, well, I think of media files as heavier than the files that would be needed for authentication or you know small data transactional workloads. What's new about this system? Well, I mean, you know, in some sense, nothing is ever totally new in computing, right? Like, ultimately, there's some bytes on a hard drive somewhere, and you're trying to get the bytes on a hard drive somewhere else. So like, on some, like, I'm not claiming to this, this like, revolutionizes computer science or anything yet. However, it's always about the affordances that are offered, right? So like, using like the, the way that we've interacted with CDNs and the APIs to sort of make that happen, are not really like tuned for doing this kind of thing. Like they don't feel like a data store. Whereas this is kind of more like a slightly different take on the actual interface and like gives you the ability to sort of manipulate these things in a way that like gets you thinking about it like a more traditional data store rather than just a CDN. Because like, you know, you could just say like, here's this huge chunk of bytes stored somewhere and I'm going to like read it and then mess with it and write it back. But you would have to implement all that logic yourself. Like these are not things that, you know, a CDN provides you sort of like natively. And so in this case, you can just think about this as like, We've done all that kind of work for you. Like somebody else could write this kind of system. It's just we've already done it. And so, you know, there's those kinds of like aspects to it. But I think really it's also about slowly enabling people to build these kind of applications and seeing where the weak points are and then improving stuff from there. Like it's not something where, you know, my team is going to go into the woods for a year and come out with something like amazing and wonderful. Like, you know, we got customers who are like, okay, I'm using this thing. Here's how it's awesome. Here's what I wish was better. And then you're like, okay, I think we can fix that problem and kind of like move on from there. Right. So it's very much like it's partly research, but it's also partly just like watching how people build stuff, you know, because people do things you never expect. Agreed. You know, one thing that I guess a point I would make about this space of edge computing and the changes to how we want to interact with the edge is it's a space that's hard to understand or even think about in terms of where the technology and where the use cases are at today. I think it's something that is easier to understand if you just spend time in the industry and you have a sense of there is just a a, there's going to be an increased desire to do things faster and ultimately in order to do things faster you need to interact with the server faster the server needs to be closer to you and a cdn is a server that is closer to you but a cdn has has different infrastructure constraints than a central data center is there some distinction we can draw between 
like what are the constraints of a CDN as a piece of server infrastructure versus a fully fledged AWS data center? Yeah. So one of the things, and I guess this, this is sort of what you're also talking about, but a way to think about this is like the speed of light is the enemy. We like to think about the internet as being kind of like virtual and where geography doesn't matter. But if you've ever like visited Australia and tried to access a US website, then you know that there's like a physical distance and you can only get bytes down the wire. Like we do run into physical limits when you're talking about going all over the world. And so like one interesting thing about sort of the CDN space as opposed to like having a central server is that things need to be much more lighter weight in order to fit everybody's stuff everywhere, right? So like if I if I want to be storing people's stuff all around the world, then I need to be able to have that space all around the world. And so that requires like being more efficient about what goes where and like figuring out how these things work together. But it's also so like to get into one sort of more technical aspect of the way that like the workers runtime works is that we currently support like JavaScript and WebAssembly because the workers runtime is built on top of V8. So workers is like the compute part of the platform that I work on. Like I work on the database part, but the, the compute part is just workers. And so part of the reason why we did that is because basically V8 has this concept called isolates that's sort of like lightweight threads within V8 itself. And so when you're when you're deploying to say like AWS, every application, like say you're building a bunch of node applications and you're 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 putting them on AWS and other people are putting node applications on AWS, there you have a whole lot of space and you have a whole lot of compute. And so you can afford to let everyone have their own copy of Node. And you know, I'm sure there's like millions upon millions of different identical copies of Node running inside of EC2, right? <laughs> but like what we need to do is save space and be able to fit everyone's stuff all over the place. And so we run like the runtime as part of our infrastructure. And so you can't just run arbitrary code. You basically are running your our code on top of V8. And the reason that it happens is because we need to be able to share that infrastructure across all these applications in order for like the economics to work out. Because you can't like afford to fit a complete full US East one size data center everywhere around the world all the time. Like even Amazon does not have that much money. <laughs> and so, you know, these kind of like economic aspects also inform the like technical aspects too. I've had this point come up in discussions around the cold start problem for, for functions as a service because the cold start problem for serverless applications occurs when you make a request to execute a serverless function let's say it's a node node.js function, in order to load that serverless function into an environment that it can actually execute in, you need to load the node.js runtime. And you know if you start up a server, oftentimes a container, with the node.js runtime, that might take a little bit, and then you have to load your function into it, and then you actually have to execute it. And then you have this dedicated server with node.js already installed in it, the cloud providers, if they can, if they can allocate another workload to that same server, another workload that is, you know, Node.js compliant, that is a Node.js function, then they could get to reuse that server infrastructure, and they can have a, they can avoid some of the cold start penalty. That's a similar thing to what you're describing here, except in, instead of a container, it's a, it's a WebAssembly system, I guess. Yeah. 
Or JavaScript itself. Like basically, there, there. I'm not going to say that things start instantly because, of course, stuff never starts literally instantly. But we don't have cold starts the same way that Lambda does because the V8 instance and all of the associated machinery are just always running. There's no need to like boot up. It's just about like instantiating the your particular program. There's not like the booting of the entire world first and then instantiating your program. So we tend to be able to start stuff up like very very quickly because that's that aspect is just running all the time and the, sort of the homogeneity of the fact that we're you know basically just like purely running V8 and nothing else. Like there's no container support. That's like part of what makes the architecture work. We've had a show about Cloudflare workers. Can you just describe in brief how that runtime works? So are are the users who are creating these functions that are going to run at the edge, are they creating all of them in in JavaScript and then deploying them to Cloudflare workers? Is that the runtime model? Yeah, so either JavaScript or Wasm. So by now, this is like a pretty new thing. So it probably was not available whenever you had your last show on this. But there's this command line tool called Wrangler. And it lets you basically like package up either your JavaScript program or if you're using Rust or C or C++, it will compile it to WebAssembly and package it up and ship it off to Cloudflare for you. And then, you know, you have that running in a particular place. There's a way to configure, like, you know, what URL it runs on and all that kind of shenanigans. But yeah, like fundamentally, like you're you're writing either JavaScript or something about the WASM and you're like giving it to us and then we're running it. In a post that you wrote, I saw you discussing the the distinction between a WebAssembly runtime that supports JavaScript and one that does not. Could you describe that distinction in more detail? Why why is that important? All right. So I love WebAssembly. Don't get me wrong. It's it's still early days as a technology. Like there's lots of rough edges and you know, people are still figuring it out. It's only been a little over a year that it's even been generally available in browsers, let alone, you know, the long tail of browsers that they leave. And so while while I'm like psyched that we're supporting WebAssembly, because I think it's important. Ultimately, JavaScript is the most popular programming language that exists. You know, even if you're not a, a quote unquote JavaScript programmer, you probably know a little JavaScript. You probably used it in anger from time to time. And so, like, you sort of have this like choice about like, is it worth supporting JavaScript or not? And so, if the answer is yes, which is like what we think at Cloudflare, then you know, it makes sense to reuse an existing JavaScript runtime because they also tend to support WebAssembly thanks to WebAssembly being part of a browser technology. But like if you if you don't want to support JavaScript, you can build your own WebAssembly runtime, which may be a little more like strictly customized to WebAssembly specifically, but there's no current way to compile JavaScript to WebAssembly. And so you kind of like you know, even though in theory that is a thing that could happen someday, it does not exist yet, definitely not in a production capacity. And so what I've seen in this in this process of edge compute is people are basically choosing one of those two paths. And like, if you want to support JavaScript, then it makes sense to, you know, Google is not exactly uh, abandoning V8 anytime soon, right? Like they pour so much time and effort and resources and they have fantastic engineers like working on V8 to uh, make it awesome. And so like that means that it makes sense to go with V8. But if you don't, then like maybe you want to do fancy custom things that are like WebAssembly specific. And so some people are also like choosing that route. And I think it's going to be kind of interesting to see what those choices mean in the future. 
you know, maybe maybe uh, you don't actually need JavaScript to be successful. But I, I found that like betting against JavaScript is generally not something you want to do personally, even though I've never really been a person who writes or even particularly likes JavaScript. You know, it just somehow always wins. <laughs> in the end. It does. It does have a sense of inevitability. Have you seen people use Cloudflare workers to do server side rendering? Yeah. So hilariously, like my personal website is actually like sort of this. I mean, I guess it's not in JavaScript. So it's like, it depends on what specifically you mean by server side rendering. But just like, for example, if you, if you are willing to live within the constraints that I mentioned earlier about KV, then you can build sites where there is no origin and it runs entirely on the edge. And so like I have the contents of my website stored in uh, KV and then it gets rendered entirely in a worker by pulling it out and doing all that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of like an interesting thing. I have seen people do like React server-side rendering things as well. And that's definitely like something that I like. I've seen some of our customers start to do that. Let's put it that way. The reason I ask about server-side rendering is I did a show a couple weeks ago with a, a company that has a lot of user-generated content. And the way that they use server-side rendering is there's a very late binding between what the data model in that in in a user's page request is and when that page gets rendered by React. And and the reason this is important is because the way that React works to to the extent that I understand it is you have this templating language and the templating language accepts some data and together with the templating language and the data, there is an interpretation step where that React model gets turned into HTML that the user can actually display on the page. And if you do that on the server, then you can just send the fully computed HTML page to the user, and then the user can just render that page. Whereas otherwise, you might be sending the if you did client side rendering you might be you might be sending the react file together with some javascript packages that cause the user to do all this computation in their browser and then they might have to do data fetching as well and it can be it can be much slower so you can really accelerate this by putting it on the server and this is especially useful for a system with all this user generated content you know cuz users are are updating stuff a lot and so then you you might want that that the, those updates to be pushed out to a key value store at the edge so i i just find this to be a a great subtle when when the person on the show told me about this uh, this was a, an episode about gaming if if people are curious it's called gaming with Eli Brown is the title of the episode but it, it was something i hadn't heard before like i i had heard these ex- these examples you know like the ones you mentioned like the, the authentication example or perhaps i'm doing like ab testing or maybe i want different users to see different versions of an e-commerce website so they're more tempted to to buy their shoes or buy a dress depending on who they are but i hadn't heard the the server-side rendering use case and i thought it was a good example of of how these technologies often they get built with some set of use cases in mind but more generally a, a fundamental like you said the speed of light thing you know a fundamental notion of computing that's going to to be important and and then we see you know perhaps even uh, more applicable more relevant use cases that we didn't expect definitely and i think this also is like 
part of, you know, okay, so these, as you said, you've heard of some of these examples before, and that's because I think they're the ones that people have talked about, and they're a little easier to get people's heads around. But like uh, your example reminded me of another interesting, like related example, because in some sense, this is server-side rendering, and sometimes it's not. But I've seen people do a thing where if you request a page in an older browser, it will include the polyfills in the JavaScript that it sends back to the client. But if you make the request in a newer browser, they will serve the smaller file that only includes, you know, not the polyfills. And therefore, like, you're able to support, you know, like we think about like, okay, I want to support old browsers and new browsers. So the new browser people end up paying the cost of transferring and interpreting and compiling all that JavaScript. But, you know, if you can dynamically sort of serve, and it's like, again, it's like sort of dynamic and sort of static, right? Because if you have both of those, say you pre-render, like, okay, I have a bundle that supports everything back to IE6 or whatever, and I have a bundle that like only supports latest Edge Chrome, and I have them, they're pre-rendered, and they're both sitting there in said store, and I can serve them dynamically to people based on what kind of browser they're accessing it with, your cutting-edge users get a much faster experience, and your, you know, laggard uh, or slower uptake customers get something that still works for them. And so I think there's all sorts of little interesting bits like this is like part of why I'm interested and excited about this space. There's just like so many little ways. And I don't think we've really like figured out the best way to do any of these things yet. We did a show pretty recently with Till Schneiderite from Mozilla, where you used to work. Totally. I know Till. Okay, right. You know Till. Okay, great. And one thing that that was really cool about that episode was I've been doing some shows about WebAssembly for a while, and it's one of those topics where it's hard for me to exactly understand where we're at in the evolution of the technology and and what the bottlenecks are. And he wrote an he co-wrote an article that just laid out the landscape of all the tooling that we need to in order to make WebAssembly really good. And it it shows in granular detail. Here's why it's still immature, and 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 you can just you can draw these. You can say, okay, once we get this next iterative improvement, it's going to be this much better, and once we get this other iterative improvement, it's going to get this much better. It makes it more concrete that this is going to improve. It's going to get better over time. When you're looking at the intersection of WebAssembly and the Edge, what are the biggest handicaps in the ecosystem today? What are the, the, the most important areas of improvement that we'll get to in the near future? Biggest one by far is a combination of file size and the fact that WASM modules are sort of statically linked. These two things interact with each other in a way that is complicated. So for example, we have a limit currently where you can only upload something that's one megabyte in size at maximum. And that's for all these reasons before about, you know, being able, needing to be able to afford to store everything everywhere and like all those kind of constraints. And so there's sort of this like file size limit that we currently have. The problem is, is that when you use a language that's not Rust or C or C++ and compile it to WebAssembly, you need to compile the entire runtime of your programming language to WebAssembly as well and include it in the bundle. And so, for example, I would say that our number one requested language to support is Go. And right now, if you compile Go to Wasm, Hello World is about 1.1 megabytes. <laughs> and I swear these limits were picked before I was involved. I didn't make it specifically. It's like a joke about, you know, being on the Rust core team and have like Rust work and Go not work or something. <laughs> but like, so like, this is a problem though, because, you know, it's like just a little too big. And so, you know, we could up that limit and see if that works out in all the various ways. But the real problem here is that like, 
with JavaScript, you know, as I said before, we're sharing V8 across all these instances. But because WASM is kind of like statically linked, you put everything into the module, there's no way for me to say, compile the Go runtime to WASM and then share that runtime across all of the individual programs that are written in WASM that are compiled that way. And so that's like a combination of like Go's preference for static linking and WASM's preference for static linking kind of like turning into this sort of situation. And so the C-sharp folks are working on this kind of thing a lot with uh, the Blazor project, where they kind of have like the C-sharp runtime kind of dynamically linked into the actual WASM application code. And I'm not sure exactly how that works. I haven't had some time to look into it. But like in order for the sort of like economics of the edge to work out, WASM improving its dynamic linking story is definitely going to be one of the, the most important parts of being able to bring things, you know, any kind of programming language to the edge. Just in case that was a little bit too in the weeds for people, could you describe static linking versus dynamic linking and, and maybe give an, give an example? All right. So this is like an age-old trade-off in, in programming that was actually motivated by the sort of like mainframe days in some ways. So the linking is how you put different pieces of your code together to produce a final like executable. This stuff has a very strong like C kind of like heritage to it. But basically the idea is that like it, a statically linked thing means that everything needed to run your program is included in the binary of your program. So like I send you a binary and everything's in there and you can run it and that's totally fine. But there's also this option called dynamic linking. And you may remember .dll, <laughs> yes. those files, that stands for dynamically linked library. And the associated DLL hell that goes along with it is basically like if I give you a program that's dynamically linked, then it sort of has these like holes in it. And you need to have the software that fills in the holes as well as the thing I actually gave you. And so you're like, well, that sounds strictly worse. Why, why would I care? Well, the advantage is that you're able to share the part that fills those holes with everything running on your system. So you like only need one copy of whatever runtime you're using, and it's shared across all those programs. And so that means that the, the file that you're transferring over is smaller, and it means that you're saving space on the server, and there's like memory and all that kind of thing that's going on. And so static linking is nice because it just means it's definitely going to work, but it's a trade-off of binary size for, you know, basically portability in some ways. And so that's, yeah, I hope that's a little, maybe a little higher level explanation. No, that, that, that's perfect. And, and can you just give a, a brief example of why that's relevant to the cloud world and the edge computing world? Yeah. So right now, if five people want to upload a Go program to the edge, then you're, we're going to have five copies of the Go runtime running simultaneously. And that's taking up five runtimes worth of space, and it's all the same code anyway. And so it would be nice if we could instead run one copy ourselves and share them amongst all those programs, and then the total amount of memory size would go down and things would be faster and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, because also, back to our discussion earlier about cold starts, if everyone has their own individual instance, it also needs to be started and stopped individually. Whereas if it's shared across everyone, it's started up once and then used by everyone. And so it's also like faster in that fashion. That word runtime, what does that actually mean? What goes into a runtime? Words are hard. So <laughs> yes. almost everyone uses the term slightly incorrectly, to be honest. But a strict, strictly speaking, a runtime is all the stuff that's in your program that like you didn't write. So for example, in many languages, that includes things like the garbage collector or this kind of thing. But it turns out that, strictly speaking, every language other than assembly languages has a runtime. Like even C and C++ and Rust have a runtime, but they're just so small. Like C's runtime is on the order of like 
200 bytes or something. And so people colloquially use the term runtime to mean language with a big runtime and no runtime to mean a language with a tiny runtime. And so it gets really, gets really like complicated when you're trying to get to the actual bottom of it. And also because a virtual machine like is a kind of runtime, some people use those indistinguishably as well. And so it, it can be really messy. Honestly, this is one of the terms that I like find most confusing when trying to talk to people because you can almost never be sure which way in which they're particularly using it. Oh, well. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's so complicated. Like I think about JavaScript and when I have a JavaScript file and that, that JavaScript file is going to execute in the browser, you know, that, that has to be uh, interpreted it, or it's turned into bytecode. The bytecode gets executed. Some of the bytecode execution might get put into a format that's, that's uh, like faster access for the hot code path. And then you, you, know, you, you have different areas of the code that are in different states of execution speed. And then, you know, if you add in WebAssembly into the mix, and then you have WebAssembly modules that are sitting in one place, and you have JavaScript modules that are sitting in, in another space, and then you have uh, tooling that is loaded into your whatever, so if you're talking about the server or the browser, you have tooling that's sitting somewhere, and the tooling is is called in order to execute these different modules. It's like, what areas of this is code? What areas of this is data? You know, what areas of this is quote unquote runtime? It's very hard for me to for me to understand from the from the vocabularians. Definitely, and a lot of the vocabulary comes from the days when this was much more cleanly separated, which is why it's like so difficult today. So, for example, like I, I'm lucky enough to call some of the people on the V8 team my friends, and I'll occasionally joke with them about how like. You know, types are a compile time concept. And they're like, but what happens if your compiler happens at runtime? Because like we write a JIT and like a JIT is a compiler that runs during your runtime, not during compile time. And so like all these terms are like, it's sort of like everything does everything now. And so it's just really, really difficult, you know, because like a lot of this has this heritage that goes back to simpler days. Like, you know, originally JavaScript was just purely interpreted and it was very straightforward and there's no big deal. And now it's exactly as you say, it like gets sort of pre-compiled to bytecode and then that bytecode gets interpreted for a little while, but then eventually compiled. And like, you know, it's just, it's, it's awesome, but definitely not simple. Taking a step back and thinking about Cloudflare and the CDN market more generally, CDNs, they were long regarded as a complete commodity business. You know, it's just basically this big caching infrastructure. All that really matters is how much are you paying for it because they're all pretty fast. Why have Cloudflare and Fastly been able to develop these highly differentiated businesses with a reputation for innovation in this market that we originally thought was a commodity? Yeah, I think, so it's kind of funny because when I interviewed, I was like, yeah, you guys are the CDN company. And almost everyone was like, oh, we're not a CDN company. <laughs> and that's because as it turns out, like as a web developer, I mostly knew about Cloudflare as like a CDN service, but like Cloudflare does a lot of stuff. Like, like, a, like I've been working here a couple months now and I'm still pretty sure I don't know what all the like things that it does. And so they sort of talk about it as like internet infrastructure, like anything that makes the bytes get from point A to point B faster and better. Uh, is a thing that they do. So there's like DDoS mitigation and like detecting bots and spam traffic like automatically and like smart routing between different data centers. And like there's like VPNs, like all sorts of shenanigans. 
And so, you know, I think with that, like part of the part of the reason why these companies are getting into this space is because like you sort of alluded to it earlier, like in order to build up a CDN, you need to build these servers all around the world. And then you're like, I have all these servers all around the world. What could I do with them? Like, like, why are they just doing, like, as you said, there is some compute that needs to happen to make CDN stuff happen. So it's like, why not make it so that people could do more interesting things with it? A lot of the early uses for workers were sort of like customizing the Cloudflare platform, like maybe, you know, making a different API call based on whatever, or maybe just redirecting some URLs from one place to another. And so it kind of grew originally from this, like, almost like hyper configuration tool into like sort of a, at some point you realize like, I'm using a Turing complete language for this. I could just do anything. And so I think people just kind of had those realizations like sort of all at the same time, which is a thing that happens every once in a while in history, you know? But yeah, I think that's fundamentally it is like when you look at all the, all these data centers around the world and you're like, how can we use them even more efficiently for people? You just sort of eventually arrive at compute because, you know, it's more general. Like, like I said, you do anything. So that's a lot of stuff. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do, do CDNs, do they actually own their data centers or do they rent from colos? I think that it entirely depends, but I'm actually not 100% sure, to be honest with okay. you. Okay, yeah. And I am, I'm sure there's also hybrid setups too, right? Like, I'm sure some places like own the most important ones and lease the other ones mm-hmm. out because, yeah, like they're definitely like, and then there's also like, you know, do you own the hardware, but you're renting space in a data center that already exists right, right, right. as opposed to building a data center? Like, there's got to be so many options there. And honestly, since that's not part of the, the part of the business I work in, I don't know how that works at Cloudflare, but I'm just assuming that everyone does some sort of hodgepodge combination of everything. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny because AWS started as a cloud provider, and then they expanded into the CDN business. I could imagine the inverse happening. I could imagine Cloudflare, which I get it, it's not a CDN company, kind of started as a CDN company, at least reputably. But there's no reason why they couldn't expand into a fully-fledged cloud provider. The cloud market is growing so quickly. Um and, you know, I also see changing preferences in how developers want to interact with a cloud provider. Just the AWS console for, like, a new developer. If I'm a new developer coming out of college or even in college, I have no desire to interact with the AWS developer console. That's, like, I might as well be writing assembly. I've been programming most of my life, and I have no idea how the AWS console works. <laughs> Like I've always, like when I was responsible for running services, I was like, you know, I'm just going to like use either a VPN service or Heroku because like AWS is like amazingly powerful, but there's so many switches and dials and like, it's just not my area of expertise, right? Like that's why we have ops people because that's like the area that they know really well, but it's definitely like its own full profession for sure. Here's a question. Why is it that Heroku has remained so dominant and so popular despite being like first to market or nearly first to market as the usable hipster platform as a service. Like I'm, I'm the same. I'm still deploying my new applications to Heroku, despite the fact that there's so many other, I think there's a bunch of other hipster platform as a service. I mean, I use Firebase too. Firebase is pretty cool, but what, what explains the continued success of Heroku? I think Heroku cares a lot about developer experience and, you know, you can always charge more like the, the sort of like, Classic advice for pricing is you charge based on value, not based on cost, right? And so, like, if you want something cheaper, it's definitely out there, but you're going to be dealing with all that manual configuration stuff. And I think if you, like, take a hard look at, you know, what does it cost 
to not only like, like, are you really saving, you know, multiple ops people's dollars worth of salaries by going with a lower level provider and building this stuff on top? Or like, do you just pay a little bit more and type get push? And so like the ultra simplicity of Heroku, I think is, is why they're still super, super going strong because it's, it's just like really very straightforward. And there will always be a market for like, I am paying you to think about this problem. I don't want to have to think about this problem. Moving fully into the op-ed section of this podcast and away from the, you know, Steve Klabnik talking about Cloudflare workers and the dynamics of edge storage, you've written a bit about open source. And, yeah. and we've had we've had a, a number of conversations on this podcast recently about the changes to open source licenses that some independent software vendors have made in order to improve their business relative to the the cloud provider offerings. Definitely. And the open source software vendors, the independent software vendors, when they change their license, they're often making the argument that that they're only doing this because the cloud providers have violated the spirit of open source. But it's it's to me it seems like a strange it's strange thing to say when you yourself are changing the license of your open source business or open source project so i'm just i'm wondering from your perspective who if anyone has moral authority in this debate yeah it's tough because like i i find myself being very old and cynical about all this shenanigans like you know like everyone said the gpl was horrible because it put all these restrictions on you and then it turns out that when you let no no restrictions, people are going to do what's in their best interest, which is arguably what's not in your best interest. And then you're going to be left out in the cold and you're like, why did you do that? And it's like, well, you said I could do that. So I did it. And so I don't think the GPL is like the answer either. But I think that for a while, there was like this, this like, I want to say party, but it's kind of like everyone was having a good time getting everybody's stuff for free because it helped build their business. And then it turns out that like once your competitors also get your stuff for free and they out-execute you, then you're like, wait a minute, no, this is actually bad. And it's like, what you you asked for this in the first place. Like the biggest change with these new licenses is they're not literally open source because they place what's called a use restriction. And so they say like you're only allowed to so like take CockroachDB, for example, is like the most recent change. They made this thing that's basically like you're not allowed to use this in a cloud service or some sort of like there's a business. If you're doing certain kinds of business, you're not allowed to use the open source version for like three years. And then it reverts back to like a more traditional open source license. And that was like one of the pillars that open source was originally like founded on was this like you're not allowed to say how I can and can't use the thing. And there's good reasons for that. But this is also the other side of the thing. And so I feel like we're seeing the flip side, like there's, I don't want to say bubble exactly, but it's sort of similar to a bubble where it's like everyone was getting along and doing real great until some people started getting squeezed out. And now they're like, oh my God, what have we done? And so, I mean, I I feel this way in in some senses too. Like I have contributed so much open source software to the world that's made other people super rich. And I'm doing okay these days, but for a lot of my career, I was very extremely underpaid and that sucked. And, but I was like, what can I do? Cause that's what the license says. And so I, I think that we, we don't know how to fix this problem yet because the blog post you probably read that you alluded to, like, I think licenses are not actually the answer. I don't think licenses are possible to fix this problem. I don't know what is possible to fix this problem, but I don't think licenses are the answer. 
we need to have conversations around what the norms, I guess the conversations are, are being had right now, but what I didn't like, what I will pass judgment on, uh, you know, I, like you, I think I'm withholding judgment on, on much of this because this is ver- fairly new territory, but just what I didn't really like is there has been some indignation from these independent software vendors towards the cloud providers. And you look at what the cloud providers have done for the software industry, and it's just tremendously positive. So I, I don't like the assumed moral authority of the independent software vendors. I would appreciate more of a stance of, look, we didn't see this coming, and we understand this is controversial, but we kind of want to do it just to expand our business. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing the uh, the independent software vendors, and I realize there's multiple software vendors, so perhaps yeah. I shouldn't be generalizing. It's definitely tough. Like you know, you're not wrong, but I, I don't know if I would fully agree. But it, it's complicated for sure, and that's exactly the discussion that we're all kind of like collectively having, as as you mentioned. Steve Klabnik, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking once again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Wow.